Hey folks, this is Dr. Rob, and welcome to Overcoming Betrayal and Addiction, a podcast brought to you by Seeking Integrity Treatment Programs and hosted by me and my sidekick, Tammy. Say hi, Tammy. Hi, Dr. Rob. Thank you. Our show provides useful answers to your most asked questions about cheating, betrayal, and addiction. Let's get started. So we're going to start right off. I The first question, hi, Dr. Rob, is recovery possible for an addict's addict who once took advantage of a drunk friend. The incident happened approximately five years ago. Would you advise against forgiving the addict even if he is in recovery and he deeply regrets his actions? I truly believe that he is sorry and that he is committed to recovery, but I also worry that I'm crazy for trying to see the good in this person. Is it too late for him? Wow. Well, I I don't think it's too late for anyone um, unless they are so uh, disturbed that we're not a, you know, they're just so psychologically damaged that they can't get help. But I never think it's too late. Tammy and I have had people in our treatment center who are in their mid seventies, who just don't want to be that person anymore. And they will do whatever it takes to get better. So just the first part of your question, I absolutely believe that, that once you're, that what it takes is commitment and motivation. If someone's committed and motivated and they have the intellectual ability to grasp this, the rest will be fine. Um, but the other question about rape, which is what you're talking about, right? Your husband raped somebody or whoever this man is, and you're trying to figure out how to deal with that. And by the way, that is what it's called when you have sex with someone and you not, do not get consent. Even if you've been dating, if you've been making out, you know, someone doesn't, isn't awake or says, I'm not sure, you know, that's what it is. So what you're really saying is, can this man live with himself after what he's done and can he heal? Um, Tammy, your thoughts before... I, 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 addiction is an excuse, you know, it can be a reason, but, you know, if I didn't believe that there was hope and forgiveness for, for all of us, you know, at the end of the day, whether you forgive him or not, I hope he learns to forgive himself, you know, that that's where it has to, you know, there has to be some of that because otherwise that shame is just going to be, you know, the impetus for relapse. So um, it doesn't make the incident not have happened. It doesn't make it okay, you know, but forgiveness is from a very different place. It, it isn't forgive and forget. It's like, that was really horrible. That was, you know, that was, you know, that was traumatic. That was like all the negative words you can think of. But at the end of the day, I'm now responsible. I'm living in recovery. I have to do what I need to do to make amends to the best of my ability. And sometimes that isn't with the person. They they don't want to have any part of it. You especially know, so, here. Especially. Yeah, here. yeah, yeah. It isn't like the the person that was raped. You know, you know, has to absolve him of what he did. But hopefully, that person has had trauma help and you know is healing it, um, you know, as well. So. Whether you forgive him or not, you know, I'm glad he's in recovery. He stands no chance if he's not in recovery. And, um, I, it, you know, and forgiveness is, I, I really believe this for myself. Forgiveness is what I do for me, not for the other person. So forgiveness for me unloads the burden of the, you know, of all the negative energy. It doesn't make them all okay, but it, it helps me heal me, you know, even through circumstances. So. And, and I want to say something about forgiveness. Um, uh, I may want forgiveness because I've hurt somebody. It doesn't mean it's their job to give it to me. There Correct. may be things that I've done that for some people are not forgivable, but I can find forgiveness with others. You know, someone can say, 
uh, you know, I'm really sorry you did that. It's really awful. You know, um, what can you do to make it better? And I'll say, well, I'm going to volunteer for uh, a kids club for a year and just help underprivileged kids because I can't fix that, but I can help the world be a better place. We call it um, a living amends where you can't necessarily go to the other person, apologize, forgiveness because of what's happened, but you can go out and live your life like somebody who wants to make a difference and and that can be part of it. There's another piece that I wanted to say, which is not as friendly and kind of sweet as what Tammy said, um, which is more about, you gotta call it as you see it. And this guy didn't take advantage of a woman who was drinking, he raped her. And I think for us as addicts, we have to come to terms with the reality of what we've done. There is no forgiveness or understanding if I'm just writing it off as well. She was drunk and I wasn't thinking, no, you raped her. And you and that means that I am capable of raping people. And that's where he has to get to is seeing how bad he can get. Because to say, well, it was one time and I won't do that again. And how do I make it feel better is not to come into the reality of what I actually did. And we would rather look for forgiveness and how can we make this better? And then real, and by the way, that's what we do in treatment. I'm not saying rub your nose in it. But a lot of people don't, a lot of folks we work with don't fully get the, um, the what's, I'm looking for a word, the amount of damage they've done. They don't get the whole picture. They don't, and that's our job is to say, wait, did you look at this part? Um, I was talking to a couple recently and there were the ostensible, the reason they were calling because of sexual acting out. But when I listened to their story, it was like, oh, this is a really abusive relationship. Oh, these people are really not kind to each other. And so the issues can be much bigger than simply that thing that they did. Um, but I don't think you can forgive. I don't think you can move on until you've really owned to yourself and others as hard as that may be what you've actually done. Yeah, and I agree because it, otherwise it's there's always that piece that's in the dark closet that is, you know, that you're not attending to. So you on the, you know, internally know that there's more and that's not forgivable until you bring it out and, and I, I agree, you cannot minimize, you cannot, you know, this has to be in recovery, you know, it's about honesty. It's, you know, it's, you know, when we're Integrity. doing a four step, yeah, when we're doing a four step, it's an honest inventory of ourselves. You know, it isn't like, well, I'm gonna say these things and just put those out there and I'm gonna hold all this stuff back. Then we relapse, then we're not even in the recovery. So it, that's very painful. You so. Go ahead. Did I ever tell you, Tammy, when I had to work on that in the first time and my sponsor said, so wh what people have you heard and what do you think has happened to you? And I was like, I didn't hurt anybody. It never even crossed my mind. It took years to understand how much I'd heard and what I'd done, all of that stuff. By the way, there is one more thing about what we were saying earlier is that um, if you cannot acknowledge the degree to which you're capable of harming other people, that's a problem. And the people that are in treatment, the ones I worry about the most, and I mean the most, are the ones that say, I'm not going to do that again, or I've learned my lesson, or if you're an addict, you can't say that ever. What you can say is I'm working really hard in a very conscious way to make sure that I don't do that again. But you can't say I won't because you have a problem that without proper, you have a chronic emotional condition, addiction, with without proper support and maintenance will return to where it was, just like diabetes or any other chronic mental medical issue. So you have to be able to fully acknowledge how bad it can be and how far I can go and how much I can be the person I never wanted to be in order to be able to come back and say, wow, I understand why I'm working this hard because that was my bottom. Well, and I also have fear when people say, I need to control this. I need to, you know, I'm going to learn how to control this because, right. you know, like you're saying, it's like we have to understand and always be cognizant of what 
we are capable of and where we could go and do what we need to do. I always say when I'm doing my 12 step meetings, when I'm doing my recovery work, I'm putting my little insurance policy in that just for today, you know, I can remain in recovery. Okay. Ready for the next one? Yeah. I'm just answering someone's chat. Go ahead. Okay, so my SAH um, sex addiction, my sex addict husband acted out mostly with, uh, pr with professionally successful and intelligent women from hookup apps, never paid sex workers. Can you talk about the attention approval seeking aspect of this style of sexual acting out? Does this need for approval have a con connection to childhood neglect? That's a really interesting question. Well, but it's like three questions. So I know, okay, so Can you break let's talk that about, one down and we'll yeah, try so. one at a time. So this person hooked up with intelligent um, professional yeah, women, not hookups. Can you talk about attention, approval, seeking aspect of this style of acting out is the first question. Um, all sex addicts and love addicts and all of porn, we are all approval seeking. We're all validation seeking. Some of us are so afraid to approach people about that, that we just sit with paper dolls on computers and look at them. But we feel something like, wanted, desired, validated, even with paper dolls, no less other people. So I don't really see a difference between, I, I don't see a difference in the way it would affect me as a spouse or as a partner to know that person saw some person saw sex workers or they were having short-term affairs or had, you know, people they slept with occasionally or long. I mean, it wouldn't matter to me on some level because it's all the same thing. I am hurt. I am violated. I'm abused. So from the perspective of the partner, I, I think it's all the same. Uh, however, if there was an emotional context and there were emotional pieces of the affair, then as a partner, you're going to be much more devastated because it's hard enough that you had sex with people, but did you care about them is a much more painful thing for spouses. Um, I wonder, there's another part of that question. Hold on a second. Does the need for approval have a connection right. to childhood neglect? So it, it can be many things. Um, and I'll give you the opposite. I was not neglected. I had a mother who would never let go of me. She was focused on everything I did all the time and I had to get away from her. So for me, and I think some of us, uh, it's not about, it is for some of us a neglect. Let me put it a different way. Our needs get neglected. It doesn't mean our caregivers don't try or they're not doing their best or they didn't think everything they thought was right for us in their best way of doing it. But our needs were not met whatever we are. And so we start finding different ways to get it done. And that's how it happens. So different people have different ways of acting out. For example, some people want really high numbers that are anonymous. I don't know the person. I just have sex with them. I don't know their last name. And I can go through lots of people. Well, that tells me a little bit about what, grow, how the, what their issues are. Because imagine the person who wants to do things that doesn't have anything to do with their home. It's completely out there. It's completely separate. It's, you know, I know other people who act out with a babysitter. They act out with a grocery clerk. They act out with everyone who's around them. And that's a very different, you know, then I would think maybe incest or different kinds of abuse where sex was all around you. And so each one of these different things has different kinds of origins. And mostly they come down to neglect, but not neglect uh, like food and shelter. And it's much more emotional neglect. Many of us had a nice meal on the table, toys, you know, but there wasn't anybody who really was there for us emotionally. They might've been there physically, or they might've tried to be emotionally there for us, but in ways that didn't meet our needs. So neglect of who I am and what I need can come in many forms. It can come in someone not being there. It can come in someone being there too much. It can come by someone getting so upset when I say something and it becomes all about them and then my need. I mean, there are many ways that neglect can occur. A colleague of ours, of ours wrote a book on neglect 
Um, Tammy, you're reaching into the sky. I want you to know that. I know, but. It's called Neglect the Silent Abusers by a friend of ours named Enid Gray. And uh, I think it's a quite a good book on neglect because it, and let me say something more about, let me, let me, I'm not saying full sentences. Let me say something more about neglect. It is one of the hardest things to come to terms with from your past. I have worked with people who said, I wish that my mom hit me. And then I could say, that's what happened to me because it's so identifiable. Or my dad left for six years and nobody, you know, there was no, but to say I was neglected, that's the absence of something. Neglect is something that should have happened, but didn't. Well, if you're little, you don't know what's supposed to happen. You just know what is happening. So it's much harder to recognize something that didn't happen, that should have happened, than it is that something that did happen. And so people who were, you know, harmed often find it easier to understand what they're dealing with than people who were simply uh, not attended to emotionally. So somebody chimed in in the chat. It's an amazing book. Enid Gray also uh, did a podcast with Dr. Rob on sex, love, and addiction podcast, which you can find on sexandrelationshiphealing.com, along with lots of other great content. So I would encourage you to buy the book, but also uh, perhaps start with the podcast. Okay, next question. Why are some sex addicts open to getting help while others stay stuck in shame and denial? I wish I had the answer to that one. I, it's so sad for me when people, I just see it, you know, and I go, that, you know, anyway. So please tell us, Dr. Rob, why? Why does the sky, why? I feel like I'm, I'm at some 50s song. Um, <laughs> there are lots of reasons. I mean, some people don't have the emotional and psychological capability to get out. They just don't know how, they don't have the resources, they don't, are not smart enough, they have emotional challenges and they're not able to find their way out. So um, some people simply can't get the help because they're not capable of it. Some people are so um, reactive, narcissistic and emotionally damaged that they won't be, they're not able to take responsibility for their behavior and it's always somebody else's fault and why are you bothering me about that? And so there are some people who are, incapable from an emotional standpoint of listening and taking it in and they're going to be harder to work with so as much as i hate to say it um well I, tammy and i would agree that there are a number of treatment centers that have large they're large organizations we're very small so we see eight people seven people there's lots of reasons for that and one of the reasons is that if you have sex addiction and you've had certain kinds of issues and you've certain kind of past, then you can go into these large programs because they're kind of cookie cutter and you can go through and get everything you need. And if you're motivated and reasonably intelligent and you really want to get better, you will. But there are a lot of people who have mental health issues, emotional issues, different kinds of trauma, learning, just all kinds of stuff. And they need different kinds of care. And what really upsets me is when people say, I went to treatment, I didn't get better. That's not really true. Um, you know, Tammy, I used to work at a very expensive treatment center. I didn't start it. I don't believe in expensive treatment centers, but I worked there. And one of the things I would see is that people go to treatment, alcohol and drugs, and then three months later or a month, they'd relapse. And I would say to myself, how can we charge? I said to my boss, how can we charge people all this money? if people are going out and relapsing? And he said, don't you realize that the research says that once someone has gone through treatment, they may or may not relapse, but they do it less. They do it in less dangerous ways. They're much more aware of the consequences. So what you get from treatment is a whole lot of information that ruins the behavior. So I may act out sexually after I've got, really worked on this and gone through treatment, but the difference is before treatment, 
I could say it's not hurting anyone. It doesn't matter. After treatment, I know exactly how my behavior is affecting other people. And so we say in treatment, by the way, we ruin the addiction for you. You can, all of them, you can go back to it, but it will never be the same again because you know what you're doing and how it's affecting you and other people. So that was a lot of answers to, I don't even know yeah, answer your question, well, but. Well, it, it, it's so, I, there's every reason. I mean, every reason, yeah. there's no one reason. Yes. Oh, one more okay. thing I will say about that. Yeah. I have never seen a human being move off the dime around profound issues in the life unless they were in pain. Pain is our motivator. And I'm so sorry to say that. So someone's annoyed with you. You shouldn't do it. They're kind of, someone says they're going to leave you. All of a sudden we get really busy because um, I often say to the men, both in the treatment center and men and women who have worked with for many years, and I asked them why they came into treatment. And, you know, I want to be a better person. I don't want to hurt my kids anymore. I haven't been available. But why are you coming to treatment? Because you could have wanted that three years ago, six years ago. Well, my wife just found out. Well, this happened at work. Well, that's the pain. That's what's driven people into treatment. Because if you really wanted to work on this, you worked on it before. But what drove you to get help is you're in trouble. Now, what happens while getting the help is oftentimes people become aware I need to work on this for me. I need to do this for me. This is my problem, not theirs. And I'm inflicting my problem on them. And that's a lot of the road. So by the way, I'll say this, a lot of people don't get it and then they do. A lot of people never get it. I always say, don't, I can't say this right, but basically don't expect, expect the miracle. I've seen people go through nine days of treatment, 10 days, 11 days. On the 12th day, they woke up and they got it. It was like, oh my God, I thought this person would never get it. Or there's some people I don't think get it at all. And they call me three months later and said, I really, so you just don't know. Um, it really depends on how much pain it, that person's in, how motivated they are, how good the treatment they're getting. And really good treatment is about making someone less comfortable, not more comfortable. I want people to be less comfortable with what they're doing and question what they're doing because it was just too comfortable before to go ahead and do this and not see how it's affecting other people. So the treatment process is hard because you got to look at things and look at yourself in ways that you never wanted to. And that is the greatest gift that we can give you is clarity. Clarity and freedom because, you know, I always say two people are carrying around a hundred pounds of shame and guilt, you know, that they've been holding back. So having the ability to process through that, it, it, it's a game changer. So, okay. Next question. How do you discern misogynistic abusive behavior from sex addiction? Well, so addiction is, has certain um, criteria or characteristics that always go with addiction. It doesn't matter whether it's alcohol or drugs or gambling or gaming or sex or whatever it is. Number one, the person is obsessed with it. It becomes a primary focus of their life. They are not home on time. They're not attending their families. They're leaving work early. They're looking at porn in the workplace. So their primary responsibility is to education, to friends, to recreation, to work, to family, all come second to can I go out and have that experience or can I get to the point? And we know this because we hide it. We keep it secret. We want to, we don't even want to know, you know, this is our little thing. Um, the other signs of addiction are that I've clearly had some consequences. You know, someone got angry at me. Uh, I I got caught at work before. Someone at IT said the porn is not, something happened or a series of things that happened that led me to believe that this was not a good idea, but I kept doing it anyway. So despite the consequences that I'm having, I keep doing it. So I'm obsessed with it. 
I know there may be consequences and I do it anyway. And then when the consequences come, I keep going. So someone who's misogynistic and abusive, there can be addictive patterns of rage and abuse. And I, but I don't think that addicts, sex addicts in and of themselves who are straight are necessarily misogynistic. Um, sex addicts take advantage of people. We use people, we objectify people. I will use women or men day in and day out, but in my right mind, when I'm not addictively acting out, I can have great respect for women or men. I can be, you know, in fact, that dichotomy, that challenge between looking at the fact that many of us may admire, appreciate, value uh, everything about women and especially the women in our lives who we love and then do things to completely screw them over at the same time. Um, that's, by the way, the problem. You want to start to define the problem is my life is split into parts. And I'm the only one who actually knows all of the parts. Everyone else only gets a little bit, which, by the way, makes us crazy. We go crazy with that. Um, more questions? Yes. Okay. So the next question um, is, why do some men feel like they have to get the attention of any pretty girl that walks by? Well, there's a reason we're men. So we're moving out of sex addiction now, and we're moving into what men might want in general. So we have this thing called testosterone, and it's why we go to jail for violence and we go to jail for sexual behavior and, not, and you ladies, not so much, because you will tend to act in toward yourselves. You'll tend to drink, to cut on yourselves, to do get depressed. Not that you don't act out too with alcohol and other things, but we act out with sex and, and, uh, and rage and uh, violence. And because of all that testosterone we have, that kind of drives us into that state. So there is the piece of, Men are highly visual as sexual beings, much more than women. That's why we like porn. That's why we like strip clubs. We like to look. So if you put a man in a place of walking down the street and someone he's attracted to, male or female, he is going to check that person out. And he is going to sexualize them because he's a man. And that's what we do, right or wrong, good or bad. But the question is really not about that. The question is much more about um, do I need that person to pay attention to me? Not do I just notice them, but I need them to notice me. And yeah, I think that is more about I'm insecure. I don't feel a sense of power. I don't feel desirable, whatever that is. And so I will get this woman to acknowledge me, which will give me the things that I'm missing or I feel like I'm missing. Like I feel important. I feel special. I feel wanted. I feel desired. I get a lot of needs met by getting that person to pay attention to me now. There's no meaning in that. There's no real flesh on that bone. There's no nurture or nutrition in getting someone to look at me, but sex addicts think there is because we're on the floor picking up crumbs while everyone behind us is at the banquet. So every little crumb we can get of attention or that's what we're looking for, especially validation that people were attracted by people were attracted to. And by the way, ladies, I wanna say something to you about men and about gay men in particular. Many of you think, Oh, well, those gay guys, they're my friends. You know, they're sweet. They don't treat women like this. And you're right. But I'll tell you what, when I'm walking down the street with a bunch of guys and we see a really attractive 24-year-old man, the gay guys are like, look at the butt on him. Look at those arms. Woohoo. So we're exactly the same. We just do it with a different gender. So we're no different than us straight guys. It's just we do our hoot hooting and our calling out for a different gender. But we're very kind to you ladies. So you think, oh, well, gay guys, and they're not like that. We're men. We're all like this. And in fact, I'll take it a little bit further outside of sex addiction. And I mean outside of it. One of the greatest challenges I think for our culture is for women to have a better understanding of men's sexuality. 
um, who we are, what we desire, where we come from. This is completely aside from sex addiction. I mean, ladies, we know what you want. You want flowers, you want candy, you want attention, you want love, you want to be the only one. Believe me, everyone in the world has taught us what women want. Do you really care who we are? No. You don't want to know that we really want to look at everyone on the street or man, but we do. You don't want to hear that we want to fuck everyone as attractive, but we do. You don't want to hear how much we sexualize other people and want to be with them because you believe, as a woman would, because of how you're built, that if we look at that, we're not interested in you, interested in you. Completely separate thing. For men, men can go to strip clubs and Vegas and lap dances, and it has nothing to do with our relationship. Uh, we really can feel that way because for us, it was just a lap dance. It was just this or that. Nothing to do with my family, my life, because men are able to compartmentalize sex in our brains, healthiest of men, and say, this is sex and this is sex and love. So when we have sex, we can have it for two different reasons or three. One, we can have it because we love someone. One, we can have it because we're turned on by someone. Um, and I guess the third would be because we love them and we're turned on by them. But we are perfectly capable, in case you all didn't know this, of, of men of having sex with people that we don't care anything about because we're interested in the sex. This is hard for women to understand. Healthy women generally look more toward relationship and connection and feeling safe with someone. Um, and that leads them into sex. Caring, connection. And I, I certainly understand. Some of you ladies just want to go out and laid, get laid. I get that when I was younger. It is what it is. But at a certain point, healthy women kind of want more and they want connection and they want, uh, and any partners do, by the way. Um, God, I'm going off and off on this question. Um, Tammy, I'm getting lost. So I like no, what I said. You were talking, no, I do too. I was, I'm following along. So you're talking about women and, you know, healthy. Oh, right. Yeah. So you have to understand that that we're different than you and that you may read into, and I'm not talking about sex addiction. I'm not talking about multiple cheating and poor. You have to hear me I'm talking about healthy men and women, healthy, not cheating, not lying. None of that. A healthy man might go look at another woman, might get a lap dance, might. And it doesn't mean that he doesn't love you. It does mean they may not respect you or respect the vows that he made. But we really men, all men have a great capability of separating sex and love. So imagine if we are fooling around with someone in Vegas and we get a lap dance, we know you're not going to like it. We don't tell you. We say things like, well, all the other guys went to get the lap dance at the bachelor party, but I went back to the hotel to talk to you, honey, because I knew you wouldn't like that. We're lying. We went to the script club with everybody else because we're men and that's what we do. We just don't want to tell you. So even the healthiest man will engage in sexual behavior outside his relationship and not want to tell his partner and at some level not believe that on any level it would affect his partner. And you know what? That's true. Because it's over there for us, and it's like a good workout on some level. But boy, when you ladies hear about it, and understandably so, you do not sex separate sex from love. You do not, for the most part, separate um, running around and having sex be unless you're connected to someone you're interested. So imagine if I go out and have sex with a stranger, and I'm married to you, and your perspective is pretty much you don't have sex with people unless you care about them, because I don't. Well, guess what? Men and women think differently, and we are built differently. And although you as a lady or a woman might have liked some casual sex when you're younger, but now you only enjoy sex through connection, I will enjoy casual sex my whole life. And I'm not talking about sex addiction. I'm talking about my desire as a man to go mate with as many people as I can. That's biological. 
So who we are as men biologically is different than who you ladies are. And you can take all the addiction out of it and we will still do, still do things to upset you because we don't look at sex and relationships and intimacy in the same way that you do because we're men. So this is part of the challenge for you gender mixed couples is that you don't fully understand where the other person is coming from. Now, I'm not saying it's okay for me to go to the strip club in Vegas, but I'm do, and I'm not talking about addiction, but I do mean if I come home and say, honey, I went to that, I got a lap dance when I was at bachelor party, you may be upset, you may be angry, you may feel disrespected, but it doesn't mean I don't care about you or love you, or you're not the most important person in my life. It's just that men think differently. Now, none of the ladies, Tammy, are going to like this. Do you have any, since you are a lady and you're here with me, is there anything you want to say to balance out? I mean, this is what sex school is about, is understanding the hormonal and biological differences between men and women that many of us don't even want to pay attention to because it's all about love. So, but well, you, you have shared before, and I would love to have you um, comment on it again, you know, of how quickly women, because you're like, don't sleep around because here's how quickly you get connected. So, oh. you know, the, so would you share more about that? Dr. Rob? Sure. So deep connections with other people emotion, are start, as a, start out as a biological function. So for example, one of the ways that people bond in the most powerful way is when a woman is holding a child in her arms and she's looking it down, the child's looking this way and the mother's looking that way, and they're looking at each other. She is feeling great love and affection. That's something called oxytocin. It is the neurochemical that drives bonding. In fact, with people who have Asperger's and have challenges with bonding, they're experimenting with oxytocin as a way to make them feel socially engaged. For you druggies out there, one of the things that MDMA and ecstasy, at least in their original forms, released a lot of was oxytocin. So anybody who does MDMA and ecstasy just feels love. I love you. I love everyone. It's all love, love, because that's what it's releasing in the brain. So women release oxytocin, well, we, I'm sorry, let me back up. So you know on, uh, in any movie when you see these people look across a crowded room and they see each other and it's moonbeams and starlight and they can't think about it, that's, that's the neurochemical bonding of a new love, new connection. And sex, especially for women, ties that bond tighter. And let me explain how, this is what Tommy wants me to say. Oxytocin is our bonding hormone. Ladies, if you have sex with a man or a woman, you start releasing oxytocin in your vaginas. That's how endemic, how built in it is for you to start to bond. Your grandmother was right. When you start having sex with us, you start getting emotionally involved and you lose sight of who we are. Don't have sex with us right away. We'll have sex with you because we love sex and it doesn't have anything to do with emotion for us unless it does. But for you, once you start having sex with us, you get emotionally engaged. And so you really, unlike us, you know, we can some, okay. Men are a little bit like dogs. We do just want to climb on top of that thing and do it. I'm not talking about sex addiction. I'm talking about natural. We don't necessarily do it, but we want to. And then our intelligent, older, mature brain comes on and says, wait a minute, I'm married and I'm in a relationship and I have kids and I don't want to do that unless you're a sex addict. But we, our first thought is always, I want to climb on top of that. And then later, our brain kicks in and says, I'm not sure that's a good idea, or let's go for it. Not so much you ladies. You're, when you get excited emotionally and sexually, you start thinking. We have research about this. We turn into, how can I get on top of that? <laughs> Excuse me. I had to do that. But you ladies are like, oh, he seems really nice. I'm really attracted. I'm really aroused by him. I wonder if he's a nice person. 
I wonder if we're going to get along. So you guys move into this kind of inner detective, which is really a saving mechanism for women, because if you allowed your sexual arousal to influence your decisions, you would get raped, you would get abused, you'd have sex with men who leave you pregnant. So you ladies have to think, and biologically, you do think healthy women. Healthy think, women think through who they're being with. Is this a good decision? Can I detach myself from the sex? Unhealthy women, people who have abuse or all that kind of stuff, think sex is love. You know, think sex is power. Think, you know, they just think about it very differently. So tell me, that was a lot of stuff. I got a PhD yeah, well, studying all that stuff. Is there anything I, I else about that you want well, to mention? Well, the only thing I do, because someone put it in a comment, you know, how hurtful this is as a betrayed partner. You know, they yes. find that this is devastating. So, so is there any, you know, because you've been clear, this is how men think. And then you just, it is. you're tied in, um, you know, a, a thinking man who's not a sex addict is going to go, yeah, you know, we can make sound choices. like fun. Exactly. So it's you. okay. You got to live with this ladies. Our first look and thought is, hmm, that looks good. I want some. Hopefully our second thought is I have other things that are important to me. There are other things that matter to me. So our intellectuals, first we come from a lower brain, which is mm, I want some. And then we immediately go up to our higher brain, our thinking brain, which says, yeah, but unless you're a sex addict, because sex addicts stay in this lower part of our brain. We're not able, literally not able to think clearly because when we're pursuing the sex, the affair, whatever it is, we're getting pumped up with adrenaline and endorphins. And we are all excited and, and really have tunnel vision about what we're gonna do sexually. So all I'm saying, and Tammy, your question was, and I forgot, even I'm going to repeat it. Um, yes, it is unsettling for every woman to understand that that's how we're built. I am so sorry. I think it's better that you ladies more fully understand us. You understand when I'm walking down the street and I look at another woman or man that it really isn't about you, but you will take it personally. Sex addicts don't get to do that. So let me try it on this way. If you're a sex addict, it's like being an alcoholic. I can't, if I'm an alcoholic, go to certain places, hang out with certain people. Maybe I can't be at dinners where there's lots of wine. I have to watch out to not end up back in the toilet with my life. So sex addicts, just because my first thought is have sex with a person and then my next thought is how do I do it? Um, this is why we're in recovery. This is why we work on these things to have a moment to sit back and say, wow, I wanna do that, but I'm not going to. And all addicts, all addicts are missing that voice. That's what treatment is about. That's our work is because the, the ability to have this emotional response and then not act on it, but think my way through it is the challenge of addiction because we have emotional responses and we just act on it. Um, but yeah, sorry, ladies, that's how we're built. And I'll tell you one other thing about how you're built. I have been writing for six or eight years for Psychology Today. In fact, I'll brag, I have 18 million readers, 18 million so far, that's with an M. Um, but I already know, as you know, because I see the stats, when do I have a blog that is popular? Because I write every week. So they tell me, and I can tell you that if I put one of three words in the title of my blog, that the number will go up exponentially. Now let's go back for a second. Who reads Psychology Today blogs? Women. Who buys self-help books? Women. Men think we already have it together. We don't read that stuff. You guys bring it to us. 95% of all self-help books are bought by women. Not that we don't need them. It's just we don't, we're not interested. So if 95% of women read my column, which is called, by the way, Sex and Love in the Digital Age, um, and I put the word infidelity or cheating or adultery in the title of the article, the numbers 
go up exponentially. You ladies have a radar on all the time to see if in any way your nest is being violated, your home is gonna be taken away from you. You are very interested, ladies, unlike us men, in reading articles about cheating and infidelity. And you have a nose for this because your fear is that we're gonna be doing this because you kind of underneath know who we are. This is a great balance between men and women, by the way. You're worried about what we're gonna do. We see your worry and concern. And even though we wanna do it, we don't. That's healthy people. So. I am sorry to say to you, ladies, the reality of that, yes, men objectify you in case you didn't know that doesn't mean we have to exchange and we have to we have to engage you, but we do see it and we do feel it. And then if we're reasonably healthy, we make other decisions. This is the problem of being a sex addict. You don't make other decisions. You see it, you want it and you do it. Thank you for listening to this episode of Overcoming Betrayal and Addiction. If our words have led you to seek help, please reach out. You can always find us at www.seekingintegrity.com.